I can give ownership and make my staff feel like they are absolute owners of this company, of this business, then, um, then they're going to make, they're going to make good decisions for it. They're going to make decisions that are going to make the company better and more profitable and more successful. And, uh, you know, I started, we started there with our, with our camps um, that, you know, it's not just that they're not just getting a paycheck from me at the end, of, at the end of the year, they are part owners in what goes on. So the better the camp does, better they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same thing with the way the team is, the better the team does, the better they do. And uh, I found a long time ago that if we're only using one brain, mine, then we're limited because I've got, I've got three other really good brains in, in, my, uh, in my staff room that we can take advantage of. Hello and welcome to episode 33 of the 50 Cups of Coffee podcast. I am your host, Bobby Audley. I am a speaker and trainer who helps teams and organizations build winning cultures. As a trainer, I have had the privilege of working with some of the best athletic programs in the world, including the team led by today's guest. As a speaker, I have given two TEDx talks and I have spoken on stages in 36 states. If you were listening closely to my intro on the last episode, you would have heard me say 36 countries. I have not spoken in 36 countries, but the fact that no one has called me out on it means either you think that highly of me that I could have spoken in 36 countries or you skip the intros. And if you're listening to this right now, I'm going to assume that that you think that highly of me. So I'll just assume that part and and correct it here that I have not spoken in 36 countries. I've spoken in 36 states and counting at national conferences, Fortune 500 companies and to Team USA. To learn how I could serve your team, head on over to bobbyaudley.com. 50 Cups of Coffee is an idea that began with a TEDx talk in 2016 and has since become a pillar of employee engagement at organizations, a tool for developing young professionals, a simple yet powerful practice for connecting a team of players, and of course, a podcast. This podcast is a show where I have coffee and conversation with some of the best leaders and coaches in the world, and we talk about leadership, team culture, and the power of connection. In my work, I have had the privilege of working with some of the best women's soccer programs in the country. One of the first coaches to give me a shot was a woman's soccer coach, and I, I guess we did a good job because it has snowballed from there. And so due to this, I am kicking off season two with two of the world's best soccer coaches in a row. Today's guest is a man who I consider one of the finest human beings I am lucky enough to know. He's a salt of the earth guy, and you are about to find out why. Last January, I sat down for a literal cup of coffee with my guest today at the United Soccer Coaches Convention in Baltimore, and I could not be more grateful to have met. He cares deeply about his people, his players, his coaching staff, the fans at his games, the kids that come to his camps, his own family, everyone he gets a chance to impact, he cares deeply about. So let's get into his bio straight from the Texas a website because they already wrote it for me and they did a fantastic job and, and you need to hear what this coach has accomplished. It's staggering. But wait, before I do that, we have a sponsor, sort of, not really a sponsor. I've decided to dedicate season two to the late coach Ashley Riggs, a UNC Tar Heel national champion, captain under last week's guest Anson Dorrance and friend of the Audley family. 
If you caught the end of last week's episode, I go into detail about Ashley Riggs and why I'm choosing to dedicate season two to her. Ashley and my dad coached the Cicerone Syracuse high school girls soccer team to a New York State Final Four back in the early 2000s. Just three months ago, Ashley passed away after a long battle with cancer. In honor of Ashley, an annual award is being set up through the UNC Women's Soccer Program. This award will be presented annually to a player that demonstrates hard work, perseverance, and fight. Monies will also go to sponsoring high school teams and players who otherwise may not be able to attend UNC Soccer Camp, a camp that we talk in detail about in my episode with Anson Dorrance. Donations can be sent to Educational Foundation, Women's Soccer, P.O. Box 2446, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, 27515. And that address is also in the show notes. Checks can be made out to Educational Foundation, Women's Soccer, and be sure to put Ashley's name in the memo line. And again, all of this information is in the show notes. Instead of show sponsors, I ask you to donate to this fund as your way of supporting us. Now to the bio for my guest today. Again, straight from the Texas A&M website, and you are going to want to listen to each piece of this bio because it is tremendous and it sets up the conversation that I have. Entering his 28th season as the only coach in Aggie soccer history, G. Guerrero has built the Texas A&M program from scratch into one of the elite teams in the nation. G. is one of the winningest coaches in the history of NCAA Division I soccer. Under his tutelage, Texas A&M is one of only four teams to play in every NCAA tournament in the last 25 seasons. Jay has led his teams to 15 Sweet 16s, 6 Elite 8s, and the 2014 NCAA Women's College Cup. Coach G's Aggies have consistently been ranked in the national top 25 over the past 20-plus seasons while attracting some of the top soccer players in the world to College Station. And in this episode, G gets into how he attracts this talent. Coach G ranks fourth all-time amongst NCAA Division I coaches with 472 wins. He has guided Texas A&M to nine conference regular season titles and eight conference tournament crowns. I think I am getting this correct. When the past years, so this past year's team won the SEC conference title, I sent G a text and he said to me back that every class has has won a championship of some kind, which is why this title was so important to G because every class that he has coached, so classes, you know, freshman through senior has won a championship of every kind. G, correct me if I'm wrong about that, but I'm pretty confident that's what you said. And these numbers would help that make sense. G is a four-time Conference Coach of the Year and five-time NSCAA Central Region Coach of the Year. Coach G. Guerreri and my guest from last week, North Carolina's Anson Dorrance, are the only two coaches to lead a team to 25 consecutive NCAA championship tournaments. Now, this part of the bio is one of the coolest, in my opinion. With Guerreri at the helm, Texas A&M has established one of the greatest college soccer atmospheres in the country. The Aggies ranked in the top three in home attendance from 2002 to 2019. Top three in home attendance, including the nation's top attendance in 03, 04, 06, 07, and 18. Gary's teams have won 86% of their home matches since the Aggie Soccer Stadium opened in 1994. 86% of their home matches they've won. On this episode, 
Coach talks about the 12th man tradition at Texas A&M and why he believes fans are so important for creating a winning culture. And now this last part is amazing. In 2019, Texas A&M was the only NCAA Division I program to receive the freshly minted Team Pinnacle Award presented by the United Soccer Coaches Convention. A total of 17 collegiate women's soccer programs earned the award for the 2018-2019 academic year for achieving a high level of fair play, educational excellence, and success on the pitch, with the Aggies as the only squad to win the award from the top echelon of the sport. They were the only NCAA Division I program to receive this award. To be considered for the award, squads had to earn the USC Team Ethics and Sportsmanship Award and the USC Team Academic Award, as well as register a winning percentage of 75% or higher during the respective season. So you gotta earn the Ethics and Sportsmanship Award, the Academic Award, and have a winning percentage of 75% or higher. And AM and Coach G's team were the only NCAA Division program to do so. Just from that introduction alone, I hope you can see why I say G is one of the finest and most decent people I know. And to be this way after 28 years of tremendous success as a coach at one of the top institutions in the world is, is in my opinion, just the absolute best. This was a long intro because this man deserves a full and long introduction. Obviously, at the end of the episode, I asked G to share a 50 cups of coffee story. G's 50 cups of coffee story stands out as one of my top favorites right now. It is not about a chance encounter. It is not about his career. It is about family. It is about love. And it is about the true power of connection. If you're an avid listener to the show, you know it's my last question, and there's a handful of episodes out there where even though it's my last question, it might last 30 to 40 minutes. I I think this one, I do these intros before I edit the full episode, but I do believe, I've listened to the whole episode already, and I do believe that uh, it's, it's a good maybe 20, 30 minute answer to the 50 cups of coffee question. Uh, is is his story, his G's story, and and it's worth worth every every minute. Coach gets emotional when he shares it. You will hear this in his voice. You will hear this in the interview. And 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 knowing that, I'm sure he shared this story countless times, and it still hits him. Coach is a man of heart, and it comes through in his 50 cups of coffee story, and it comes through in this episode. With all that being said, please enjoy my cup of coffee with G. Guerreri. When I went to school, I knew that I wanted to be a coach. And so I was a phys ed major at the University of Tulsa. Soccer paid for my education. I had a, uh, had a good playing career through college. Um, had a chance, uh, had basically a, the equivalent of a cup of coffee as a professional. I wasn't good enough to be a pro, but you know, I was, I was a really good college player. And uh, when I was a sophomore in college, I talked to my college coach about saying, hey, I always knew that I wanted to coach. Now I know this is the level I want to coach at. I want to be a college coach. So many life changes happened for me, positive life changes happened for me, that I was like, okay, number one, I'm good at I'm really good at this level. 
Uh, so I feel comfortable in it. I feel like my experiences can help people. But also, it was a it was a really really neat experience for me. And I was so that was my thing was I can share this. I can make I think I can make people's college experience really memorable and really meaningful. And mm-hmm. so that's where it started. That was I started then as an assistant coach in my well. You know, it took me four and a half years to get my degree. So in the last semester of, of that, I was doing student teaching. And then I was also the assistant coach um, for Tulsa, for the men's team. And then uh, from there, I just started uh, moving around. And I was, for a long time, I was the, the master of the six-month lease because my, my goal was to be a head, a head college coach, hopefully at a major university. Um, but I knew that I needed, to, I needed to gain experience. I needed to see different things. I needed to learn different things from different people. And so I was a coach in high school there in Oklahoma, then got a job at at Rollins College in Florida, Division II school uh, as the assistant men's coach. And uh, the athletic director, a guy named Gordy Howe, said, hey, you know, I'll give you an extra thousand dollars if you'll uh, coach our women's team. And uh, I was like, thousand bucks? I'm your man. Let's go. And uh, (laughs) And so that was my first experience in coaching women. And again, it was a great experience. I really, you know, women, women for me were, were much more eager to be coached. Uh, now this is 1986, 87. Um, and uh, so I, I really, that, that, was, that was also a, a real eye opener to me. Um, but again, I was, I was coaching mostly on the men's side. After that, after that first season in uh, Florida, I decided to come back to Texas and uh, started at, uh, I was assistant coach at uh, University of North Texas when they had a men's program. And then I went on to uh, Arden Simmons uh, in 88 as the head men's and women's coach. And so for me, that was my first head coaching gig. Uh, living in Abilene, Texas was a was definitely a different type of experience for me. Mm-hmm. Nice people, but, you know, very different place. Um, and uh, was there for a while. We were successful. Took the women's team to the national championship game. Um, in NAI. And uh, from there, when they decided that they were going to bring the, the program at that time, the men were division one, the women were division one and NAIA. So I had a really unique experience there and the kind of kids that I could recruit. Um, but then after my, my second year there, they decided that they were going to bring back football, which had been dormant for a long time. There was a way of kind of saving the university mm-hmm. of getting an influx of 150 guys immediately, plus a band, plus cheerleader, all the things that go along with a round of college football program. So I was like, good, good for you guys, but division three, that's not my path. I, I don't want to go that, that direction. So I went back to, came back into the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex and was the head coach at, uh, at uh, Richland College, which is a community college, head men's and women's coach. Did a lot of coaching in the community with club, with our Olympic development program was around a lot of great coaches. Um, Tom Durkin was a guy who was a state coach at that time, was became kind of a mentor of mine. And uh, Tony DeChico was a, was a big mentor of mine. Tony uh, went on to be our national team coach mm-hmm. uh, around that time. And, uh, and then the A&M job popped up right at the time when I was right about to get married to an Aggie. And so um, <laughs> there's a, is a, a true statement that Aggies take care of Aggies. And so, mm-hmm. I always thought you were, I, I mean, you are an Aggie. I don't want to offend you with how I word this statement or question. I always assumed you, 
you went there uh, because of, I think I just assume everybody at Texas A&M went there. It's a thorough brainwashing. Yeah. It, it yeah. absolutely is. And, yeah. you know, I was actually, I, you know, growing up in, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, had, you know, you're around a lot of, a lot of uh, A&M graduates. And, you know, and if you meet an Aggie, you know it because they mm-hmm. are, they're all in. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a unique a very unique experience that's people they they're they're just generally good hard-working blue-collar mm-hmm. is the way that the university started so when i was when i came down to uh, interview you know went and got my hair cut short because you know it started out as a military school so i'm going to play that card yeah. i had 12 aggies as my references uh on my resume and uh lo and behold i get the job and uh my wife who never thought she was moving back to to College Station, we moved back here, and that was uh, 28 years ago. And as they say, the uh, you know, life got a lot better at that time. It yeah. just, uh, was able to build on the things that the university is about. This is a, uh, you know, it's a service university, and it's a, it's a university where you know the 12th man. Uh, actually, this this coming year is the centennial of the whole 12th man tradition, and that the 12th man tradition is basically. Um, in 1922, AM is playing in a football game up in Dallas on January 2nd, which would become the Cotton Bowl at that time. It was called the Pixie Classic. And uh, there was a, in those days, everyone played offense and defense. You didn't have 100 guys on the team in, in those days. And so the coach uh, only took a, enough guys to play, basically, because a lot of injuries and illness by the end of the year. And uh, during the game, they're playing against uh, Center College, mighty Center College, and uh, they go down to 11 players. They're healthy. And so coach is like kind of turning around, looking up and actually, you know, kind of points up and calls down a guy on the basketball team who was in the press box, who was helping out in the press box named E. King Gill. And he's like, you know, calls him down. You know, the guy's like, he goes, yeah, come on down. Brings him down to the field, says, listen, put that guy's uniform on. If someone else gets hurt, you're in. And I think he had tried out for the team in the past and just wasn't put on the team. So he stood next to the coach the whole time and was ready to go in. And for a long time, ESPN said he went in, scored the winning touchdown, never went in. Um, So he stood next to the coach the whole time. So ever since then, ever since 1922, student body stands the whole game in case the coach needs them to come in. So they're, they're always at the ready. So as a, as a soccer guy, I was like, okay, we play with 11 players. That is the coolest experience. You know, that's a, that is a full immersed. You are not just a fan. You are, you are absolutely invested in the match. You're going to, you're going to stand up for three and a half hours at a football game. I can have people stand up for 90 minutes at a, uh, at a soccer game. And right. so that fit the culture. Um, you know, I wanted our team to be exciting in the way we played the, uh, the athletic director who hired, hired me at the time was um, was actually the first Heisman Trophy winner, winner here. And um, so, you know, that was uh, John David Crow, great man. And the women's side of things was run by Lynn Hickey, who was our basketball coach. And Lynn has gone on to be a, a great athletic director, um, one of the first female athletic directors of major programs. She's currently the athletic director at Eastern Washington. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, she was the basketball coach, so I went in with my basketball language um, and vocabulary and thesaurus and basically said, listen, I, I am a basketball fan. Nolan Richardson was 
is a hero of mine. He was the basketball coach at Tulsa. His 40 minutes of hell. I go, we're going to make this a high impact, high energy. We're going to be showtime the way we play. And they're like, okay, we're going to give this kid 29 years old at the time. We're going to give this kid a chance. And so wow. they gave me a chance. And uh, as I say, we've been rather successful. We've won 18 conference championships over the time. We've been in the last 25 NCAA tournaments in a row. And, uh, you know, and I've, I've been able to, over time, surround myself with great people. And that is, frankly, that's the secret to our success is the, um, the culture that we've built through my coaching staff, number one. And then from that staff, the kind of people that we recruit into the program that are going to fit at Texas A&M. And, uh, yeah. and it's, it's not uncommon for us to, to pass on really, really talented players just because they're not going to work here either. Yeah. We don't think they're good teammates, and we hope that they go to one of our rivals and cause problems at that pro at that program, or that it's, they're just not a good fit for us. And um, so, that's been a, kind of one of the unique things that we've been able to do. We keep our roster reasonably small because um, I want I want to be able to, to actually treat everyone the same way. I want to treat the All Americans the same way I treat whoever's last in the in the uh, you know in the the depth chart on, on the team and mm -hmm. by keeping our team where it's about the same, it's the same as our travel limits that we're allowed to have. Everyone gets to travel. Everyone is going to dress out. Everyone is going to, everyone is all in. It's not the haves and the have nots. Everyone is a, is a member of the team. Everyone is part of our, our, our soccer family. I didn't realize and, that. So you, you keep it that way where everyone, it, you don't have a, you don't have a group of girls that, that has to stay back when you travel. We have it. Now the, the, crazy thing now with COVID and the fact that now everyone this past year, it's a red shirt year. This right. is going to cause problems. It'll cause, it, it could cause problems for us because my roster is going to be much bigger next year because right. of players still around, but um, it'll, and it'll be, it'll be the same situation with, with programs around the country. I think everyone's going to have a larger roster. So that'll be one of the, um, that'll be one of the things that we focus on this next year is just that, Hey, everyone is still just as important. You know, for the first time in a long time, we're, we're only going to be able to travel what we're allowed to travel for our right. SEC games, which is 24 players at, at the moment. Now, I'm quietly lobbying behind the scenes for just for one year. Let us let us let us take more people. Let us take care of all, all those kids the same way we take care of everyone else on the team. Right. We'll see how that goes. We'll see yeah. how, how how much pull women's football has in a in a men's football conference. Right. Well, that's so. I I got a bunch of questions off of off of that in terms of your culture. In terms of, I'm I'm glad you brought up the 12th man. Um, for me, I visited Texas A&M for the first time as a college student. I was there actually for a, a student government conference, so uh, uh, much less much nerdier than than anything athletic. But it was a blast. You guys have a fantastic student government, and that's why we were there. And I, that was the first time I learned about the 12th man story, and I've since used it um, when I talk about a culture and we have a concept called raving fan that of course I introduced to your team. And I remember when I, I 
I get into a flow and when I'm, when I'm tr- doing these trainings and I was, you know, in front of your team and started to explain, uh, the 12th man concept. And it hit me the whole getting into it. I was like, I got to remember I'm at Texas A&M. Like they know this concept. And I started to explain it. And I paused for a second. I was like, wait a minute, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? They're like, yeah. And I was like, okay, great. Let's, let's, let's move on from there. But I, cause I, I tell that I use that story in, in, in the training. So it was really cool to work with your team with that. But before I get well, in and people, the students come students come to Texas A&M to be a part of that. They come yeah, yeah. a part of something bigger than themselves. And I know that's cliche, but, but it, it truly is. I mean, if you, you know, since we've gone into the SEC, A&M has gone from being, you know, the second largest school in the state of Texas to now being the largest school in the United States. I mean, just the secret's out. Um, right. You know, we were taken out of the shadows of being in, in the other conference that we were in now being in the premier conference and people are like, I want to be a part of that. I, I want to see what that's like. So if you walk around our campus, you know, our official greeting on campus is howdy. We're number one, we're Texans and we're friendly. So howdy is a casual, engaging way to, to bring people closer together. And you go around campus and everyone on campus has something Texas a and I mean, they're all in. Now they, it's, it could be maroon, it could be black, it could be gray. It might be yellow, it might be blue but it always has something to do with, it's a Texas A&M shirt, it's a Texas A&M hat. And it's, it's just, the, uh, especially you come in on a football game day, it's nuts. I mean, it's an absolutely awesome experience. And so that's, you know. What does that do? My question with that is what does that do? Because obviously if someone, if someone's listening to this and they, they appreciate the power of culture, then they're just going to be taking notes on everything you say in terms of what that means. Um, but what about folks who, are kind of on the sidelines saying, ah, this whole culture thing isn't as important. You know, AM wins because they get good athletes. Uh, but you talk, you mentioned you'll pass on a 10 you did early on in your career, pass on a talented athlete who doesn't fit your culture. So one of the questions I always, I did this with your team. Someone sees a Texas AM hat, jersey, that means something to them. Um, what, so two questions with this. What does Texas A&M soccer mean to people when they see it? What do you hope it means to people? What is the culture you, you hope you've built or plant you've built? And, and how do you sustain that with your recruiting? When you look at a player, say they're the number one recruit in the country, but you look at them and say they don't fit here. What about them doesn't fit? Well, and I don't want it to be negative, like slamming a player, but like, what no, is the no, 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 no. It, it's just, yeah. you know, there, there are good qualities to being a teammate. And uh, I think um, as much as anything, like I said, A&M, A&M is a service university. I mean, we are, we are known for, you know, helping people and going out of our way to help people. And, you know, <laughs> the, the, the only thing about that is around the community is they help people and then they let you know that, damn it, Texas A&M is the greatest place ever. And I'm part of, you know, they, get, they go off on things a little bit. Yeah. But, but for us, um, you know, a big part of what, what we do with our recruiting is to show how we treat people. And so, um, you know, it, over the years, I've, I've been able to grow our summer camp program into the largest, largest one in the country as well. And our whole issue is we're going to treat these campers the way a college athlete is treated on our team. And we want them to, you know, this, we're going to recruit these kids as 11 year olds knowing that by the time they come around to being um, you know, really talented you know, soccer players, they're probably going to be so busy in the summers that they're not going to be able to come at us. So we have a chance to really put forth a great, you get one chance for a first impression, right? So we're going to make our first impression when these kids come on campus. 
And it's funny because uh, I run into so many, so many now alumni, students on campus. I'll be, I'll be interviewed by somebody that said, you know, you know, I went to A&M and, but the first time I came to A&M was I came to your camp when I was 12 or I was 13. And uh, I go, well, so did that help you? Did that open your eyes to what that was? They're going, yeah, that was my first experience at a college. And so that's the way I thought college was. So then when I started going around to other, other colleges and looking around, I was always comparing against what you guys did and how you treated people and the experience and the, you know, kind of the, the raw, raw bigness of what you guys do. And I made my mind up. That's where I wanted to go to school. And I didn't come to play for you. And I, I stopped playing soccer maybe when I was 14 years old, but, but that had an impact on me. And so that's, that, that actually, I wish I had a number of the thousands of kids who, who actually came to school here because of what we tried to portray in the way that we want to treat people, the way we want to try to look after folks. And again, as a, you know, raised by uh, Italian uh, parents, family's a big thing. And uh, it's a big, it's a big thing to me. My, my staff, I've got, uh, you know, my associate head coach and my assistant coach, our husband, wife, uh, Phil mm-hmm. Stevenson, who's, you know, arguably the best coach in the country. Um, Lori, who is kind of our culture master and mm-hmm. who's, for us, the big part of what she does is you've got two guys on, on the staff who we, I think we know what we're doing soccer-wise and, you know, having an eye on, on the right types of people to bring in. But Lori's, Lori is the key to making sure the girls feel really comfortable. They know that we're looking after them. Um, she's their, their mom away from home, their aunt, their big sister, whatever it is. And, uh, you know, that's part of the, the whole thing is we want we want these people when they come to, to play for us that they know that listen, you're whether you like it or not, you're part of the family. Uh, my my director of operations, Kurt Magnuson, has been with also Stevenson's have been with me for 22 years now. Um, you know, my director of, of ops is is an Aggie. His wife is an Aggie. Um, they've got three kids, and they're all brainwashed, just like the rest of us. Um, <laughs> I've got three kids. My daughter graduated from here. My son currently is here. He plays on the football team. Place kicker, right? Yeah. yeah. A, a punter. Yeah. Punter. And, okay. place kicker. and then um, my youngest son, you know, if he had to make his choice right now, he's a sophomore in high school, probably would come here too. Mm. And uh, so that kind of, you know, kind of putting our arms around people and making them feel not just welcome, but really that they know that we've got their back. And that they can they can come here and be themselves, and we're going to love them just the same way. But they we're we're bringing them here because they're special. If you're on this team, you must be the best at what you do. And you know, we we don't we don't we don't bring kids here just to play college soccer. We bring kids here to win championships. And uh, you know, building champions has been a a motto of ours for you know for 20 years since Bill Byrne got here as an athletic director in '03. Mm-hmm. And um, it's something that I, mean, I strongly believe in. And I think it's not just about lifting trophies. That's, that's a good initial step, but being a champion for life. How are you going to wake up and go to a job that maybe is a grind for you? You know, you, you, you know college athletes, especially players who play for me, are, are, they're self-motivated. They're self-starters. They know how to work in a, in a team environment. They know to take criticism they know how to take praise they know how to win they know how to lose they know how to come back because
because they've experienced all those things. I was going to say, is that because you recruit that. that or is that because that's the, the, the... Yeah, we, you know, it's funny. We, we looked at a thing. We had a, a little kind of an internal question years ago about, because we kept, at the time, we kept on coming in second on, we would lose on a recruit to North Carolina or we would lose on a recruit to Stanford or UCLA, you know, great schools just like mm-hmm. ours. Um, but did one to live in California, did one to play France and Dorrance. I mean, those are, those are, those are legitimate reasons not to come here. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of were saying, okay, we're going after the best kids on the best teams in the country. We want to bring winners here. You know, what if we went for the best kid on the fourth best team in the country or the, you know, the second best kid, you know, kids who are not the best of the very best, but were really, really talented and maybe were kind of in the shadows a little bit. And what we found was winners win. And if you, when you're looking for kids who are going to help you win championships, it's best to find people who that's, that's an expectation of theirs. And what we found was sometimes those kids who came from the lesser programs, losing was just what happens. Mm-hmm. All right. We gave it the old college try and you know, sorry, we came in second today and you know, I'm pulling my hair out because we lost a game and, yeah. and the, and the other kids on the team are pulling their hair out and maybe this kid didn't really affect them that much. And we're like, all right, well, that's not, we can't fault that kid for that. That's where she's come from. Let's make sure that we find winners, that we mm-hmm. find leaders who are going to, part of their DNA to bring people along and to pull their teammates with them. And, uh, you know, and that's, that's what happens. And then we, we put them on a, on a stage to win big. And, uh, you know, the 12th man also helps out that we have the biggest crowds in the country. And we do a lot to go out and uh, promote the game. I think part of my background of growing up in Dallas around players like, uh, you know, uh, Bobby Moffitt and, you know, uh, Ron Newman was the coach in those days. Uh, Lamar Hunt was the owner. People who went out in the community to grow the game. That's always been for me. I think that's what I, that's a responsibility that I have is to grow the game. And I, I feel like if I can spread the good word about what my players are doing, what my players are like, people are going to come and, and watch them. When they watch them play, they're going to be blown away by the way they play, how good they are. They might just stay. And um, so we, we kind of, we try to cater to, families we try to cater to the student body we try to cater all these things and you know, our our game day environment is is amazing i mean it's number one you've got the biggest crowd in the country for all standing i've as i've designed they stand for your games too yeah oh yeah the whole yeah. time and as you know and they sway and they sing and we're one of the few places that as i've been able to develop our facility um we're one of the few college soccer programs around the country that has seating all the way around yeah. And so, you know, I say all the time, I, I want our opponents to walk in and kind of feel like Custer as he kind of rode into the little bighorn, you know, that you're in trouble. You know, yeah. you know you're not going to be attacked, but there's no, there's no sanctuary for you in this environment. You're going to come in and you're surrounded by Aggies who are all in for the other team that you're, you're about to play today. And that's, it, it really is, there's no cussing. There's no, you know, there's no, nastiness coming from the crowd but it's it's pure support and kind of love for the, for the, our team and it's you know so we may not we may have a kid who hasn't ever been here will come here for a game they're like we're like so 
what do you think? You like playing in front of big crowds? Because if you don't like playing in front of big crowds, this is the wrong place for you. Mm-hmm. But it's you know almost always like I want to play in front of that. And yeah, it's exciting. My, my my opinion on that is you know you always hear about little old ladies who you know they a, a car accident they can pull a car off of somebody because this adrenaline rush they want. Well, that's what I want for my players. That's why that's kind of the indirect thing. If I can build up and get these crowds big, I'm going to put that superhuman adrenaline into my players, and we'll be able to lift ourselves and, and beat people and, and go on. And it's, so it's, it's a self-perpetuating thing. Winning draws crowds, crowds draw winning players who want to win, who want to play in front of that, who want to be a part of a, a part of that. It, it just kind of builds upon each other and it just makes it to work. When people come in, the expectation for our, our players, when you come in is, Hey, we're here to, we're here to win it all. We're going to, we're going we're gonna to do everything we possibly can to win. And, and so the culture is, what are the things that we have to do? How, what kind of a teammate do I have to be? You know, what's, what, what's allowed for me um, as a college student? What, what are the things that I can do? What sacrifices probably do I have to make? And, you know, this past year of, of COVID has been, you know, it's probably shined the, the light on our culture better than anything else. I mean, because here it is, it's a, it's a year where, at any given time, if somebody tests positive, and we had two false positives uh, this year that put that kid into COVID jail, you know, into quarantine, mm-hmm. and then the people that she was in contact with might be seven more people, boom, all of a sudden I've got eight people in COVID jail. They have no symptoms. They, they, haven't, done, they haven't done anything wrong, and, uh, and now they can't play. Mm-hmm. So what's the culture of the team like? Are they going to give up, or are they going to, uh, you know, kind of take – take, take the next step to really, you know, put their arms around each other and, and go for it. And uh, so this past year when, you know, I, in the SEC, we were like, listen, we need to make this a meaningful season. We need that. We need this to be fall to be a season that we play because these kids, you know, these are super competitive kids, all sports. Um, they've come here to make this part of their college experience. This is a big part of their academic experience as well. And we want to play our game. So, so we went through, we just played an SEC schedule in the, uh, in the fall. And, you know, our, our girls were, uh, ended up as, as co-champions of the regular season. So, you know, we looked at it as, hey, we went into what was the craziest, you know, maybe worst year for college sports. And, uh, and we came out of it with championship. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, the girls come out of it with a ring on their finger for, for the effort and for the sacrifices and for the things that they did for each other. So. What do you oh, think? Yeah. What was that? Because I remember when I was in the spring, I talked, I worked with a lot of teams, yours included, and my reoccurring theme was every team right now is going through the same thing. And and come fall, at that time, we didn't know if you were going to play. And and a lot of teams, that was their mentality was, ah, we probably aren't going to play. And and I was talking to, you know, coaches and ADs, and I was thinking, like, I think you're going to play. And, 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 but we didn't, like, there was this weird time of, like, not telling the players that because everything wasn't certain. And so my message was, listen, you know, whether you play or don't play, if you do play, there's going to be teams that are prepared and ready for that. And then there's going to be teams that aren't. The teams that aren't are going to have all the greatest excuses in the world. Well, you know, we had COVID, we had this, we had that. But then there's there's going to be that one or two teams uh, that is ready to go, and yours was one of them. Um, what was the difference? What was the mentality of your team through the summer, getting prepared for the fall? Well, I think we give you a big a big piece of that 
because, um, well, first off, at the end of our 2019 season, um, we had a big senior class, so a lot of that, a lot of our class graduated out, and um, two of two of my players came to me and said, "Hey, we, you know, we need to, we, we need to shake up our culture a little bit." You know, it's, and I'm like, "Yeah, I agree." I go, "There's some people who are kind of negative, and they've now graduated, and this is a really good opportunity for us right now to uh, kind of to make that next step." Around that time, you and I met um, up in Maryland, mm-hmm. and um, and brought you in, and really, the team was. They were they were they had a desire to bring each other together and mm-hmm. to show how good they could be as a team, as a as a real unit. And um, so you know, brought you in for a full day of adrenaline pumping, you know, yeah. excitement. And um, I think the very first, I think you you started at about seven o'clock in the morning and got a bunch of college kids seven o'clock in the morning, which isn't. No, not the most alert group, not or easy, enthusiastic no. group. <laughs> and uh, by the end of the day, um, they were all in. And so we, we kind of rode that energy and rode, rode that enthusiasm for each other and what they were going to be for each other. Um, and really what happened was when all the COVID stuff came, it just kind of heightened all, all of that because we started to go into what we called functional units or you know, bubbles of sorts. So our functional unit, our family, was was the team, and we kept on saying, "Listen, the things going to get us into trouble are the wild cards, are the third parties who come into into our environment." So what this means is, you girls can't coach kids this fall, you know, you, because you're going to come in contact with kids. That's not maybe a big deal, but grandparents, other people, mm-hmm. and any one of those, you get you get the germ, and you're out. And now you're out and other people out. So you can't do that. If you were working for, um, you know, if you were an Uber Eats delivery person, you can't do that anymore. You've got to, you know, if, if you're going to be a part of this, then you've got to make sure that you're all in on that. And, and again, the experiences that they had from the spring with you and from, uh, from the things that we kept building on o- over time and the way the kind of people that we have in the program, um, you know, they, they really they gravitated to each other and they really looked after each other. And they had to learn a couple of hard lessons as, as the summer went on. And, uh, you know, just being college kids, it's sometimes the lessons are, are kind of, are, are hard for them, but, mm-hmm. but they did learn and, uh, and really they got stronger for it. The, the teams that I was really working and we were winning Number one, we were, and we were really good. So we graduated all these starters and the expectations I think of, the rest of the world was that, you know, we don't know what really A&M is going to be like. We're not really sure. So, you know, lo and behold, the first game, we, we come out gangbusters. And I think, I think we passed the eye test with, with a lot of people around, you know, we had four first team, all, all conference players. We had the defensive players of the co-defensive players of the year. We had the rookie of the year. We had the offensive, we had the uh, uh, midfielder of the year. We had, you know, a lot of people who really excelled and, really um, took advantage of being in, in this team to really show what they could do. And the individuals, the individuals were heightened by what the team did. So mm-hmm. I was always worried about you know, what's going to happen around the country. What's going to happen with these teams who aren't winning and they might just throw their hands up and just say, well, you know, what the hell we, we tried, you know what, I came to this campus, campus X or whatever it is. And, 
I'm a big deal on this campus. And you tell me I can't go to parties saying I can't be around girls, can't, I can't do this. And you know, what's going to happen to those schools? We could see the wheels falling off of a lot of a lot of those programs. And I think SEC football, you saw that maybe a couple of times with mm-hmm. some of those other teams. And uh, luckily for our football team had a banner year. So they became stronger. Now that's we're we're in the same orbit with those people. So it, it kind of made it to where you know we all kind of got stronger as we watched other teams kind of falling apart. And that, and that was also, and we felt for those guys, but it was a bit of a rallying point for us to say, hey, you're doing the right things. Keep doing the right things. You've got to, you can do this. You can keep going on it. And, and we kind of we kind of caught fire and kept rolling through the year. What is the impact of being at a campus? Obviously, you've talked a lot about the culture of AM, but also AM has a lot of winning programs. And I love the, the I use it a lot, the phrase a rising tide floats all ships. And and you know, being at talk about being at a campus where there are a lot of programs that are not only successful, but they want to be successful. So yeah, you might have a year, uh, any team on campus might have a year where they're not in the national limelight, but your basketball team, men's and women's, your football team, your, your soccer program, your softball, like any team there, I feel like has an ability to be really, really good. Does that, do you have a culture among the coaching staff that, that expects that? We do, and, uh, and and there's a good culture amongst the, the student athletes. I mean, you go into our dining hall and you sit down, and you know over there is a guy who's going to be playing major league baseball in three years. Over there is someone who was in the last Olympics running for you know Grenada. You've got a kid over there who's going to be in the NBA. You've got three kids back there who are all Americans on the football team, and they'll be in the NFL as millionaires not not too long from now. And all of those things. Um, you know, it's contagious. I think that, you know, good can be contagious and watching and seeing what other people are doing to, uh, to, you know, hone their craft and to, to be the best that they can be is, is pretty, it's pretty interesting. And we've got, we've got some extraordinary coaches here. Gary Blair uh, comes to mind as our women's basketball coach and who also is a soccer dad. So he's coming to all our, our games and he and I are friends and he's up for the Naismith award this year as a, in women's basketball, this team at the time we're recording this, they're 19 and one right now. Mm-hmm. And, and they're another team that people didn't know what they were going to be like this year. And here they are, they're going you know, to have a chance to, to win the league and be a really high seed in the NCAA tournament. Uh, Buzz Williams, who's our men's basketball coach, who's a, who is, a, is all about culture and all about taking care of his guys and helping his guys be more than just basketball players. You know, Jimbo Fisher, the demands that he puts on on our football players and the expectations for excellence that he has brought forth and the way that he's changed the culture of that program to be better. And then you know, maybe the two best of all is Steve Boltman, who's our women's swim coach, and that he's he's a legend. And then Pat Henry, who's our, our, our track and field coach. And I think all Pat's done is win like 28 national championships and is <laughs> – put hundreds of, of athletes in the, in the Olympics and our, who are pros on the pro circuit and all this. And, you know, the demands, the expectations that he has for his team and the way that his, his coaching staff works. I mean, all of those things are, I mean, it's, a, it's a great learning laboratory for, for all of us who are, who are interested in, in getting better. And, you know, it's, it, it really goes across the board. And you know, we have a, a, a young, new athletic director, for the last couple of years, Ross Bjork, 
and you know he has a good energy about him and the way that he supports us and the way that he supports the student athletes and all of that you know you can be around people who aren't very good at those at some of those jobs and you know it's a weight on you but mm. when you're around people who bring you energy and bring you positivity and and again I, I think that the biggest thing that what Texas A&M is all is about is it's yes we can we can do that hey if we work together and if, you know 50 years ago it was just a bunch of guys getting in the old beat up pickup truck and going and working together to to accomplish something well now it's it's more than that it's hey together we're all in this because we want to we want to serve other people and we want to we want to be a part of helping other people be better so let's pull our resources let's pull our our energy let's understand that if you're on this team you must be really good and you're going to help me win and that's that's a big part of us is you know you we always hear about our, our players. They'll go on a visit someplace else when they were being recruited, and they're you know, the team. The team's really nice to them as they come in. They're like, "Hey, you know, so what? Do you, what position do you play?" And I'm like, "Oh, I'm a forward." And all of a sudden, you know, it's a little colder in the room. Well, I'm a forward. What are you doing here? Um, mm -hmm. We don't need you here. And and it gets a little bit icy all of a sudden because it's it, because what what for whatever reason it's territorial in that particular culture. You know, whereas here it's like, okay, well, oh, you're a forward, so, so am I. You know, you probably can take a little bit of the heat off of me and make me better because you're going to, you know, the other team's going to have to worry about you and not just me all the time. And that collective collective um, mindset of we're all going to make everybody else a little bit better and in training that, you know, competitive nature, you know, we want we want people to go go for the kill and uh, not let their, their foot off of somebody's throat during training. After training, put your arm around them, go, go go grab a coke or something like that. Everything's great, mm -hmm. but understanding that it's you come here, it is okay to be great. It's okay to to try to annihilate your teammate and to try to, to try to uh, you know go out and do whatever you can. And what, one of the best terms I remember a few years ago from one of our players, we were talking about goal setting at the start of the year, and this is I mean. Cute girl, Southern California girl, nicest, one of the nicest people you'd ever be around. You know, she like raised her hand as, you know, an idea for one of the goals. And she said, I think one of our goals should be to crush our, to crush the dreams of our opponent. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's exactly yeah. what we want to do. We're going to do that. She goes, yeah. And so that became kind of a thing. Crush their dreams is, is uh, someone dreams of coming in and beating us ain't going to happen. We're going right. to crush those dreams. And right. uh, so setting that cult, setting that, that mindset up that that's the way training is going to be, you know, and like I said, Phil Stevenson, who's uh, my associate head coach is, is awesome. And uh, he and I have a great working relationship on how, how we go about things. And he does a great job of making training sessions fun, but really competitive. And, you know, kind of a thing of, you know, when we're, when we're clicking, we're really doing well. All right. Good job. Practice is over. You've done well. Our practice mm -hmm. might last 50 minutes one day or, you know, an hour and five minutes instead of three hours like you're going on at other places. That's just a matter of, hey, you come here, you get your work done, do your business, play it. You play like your hair's on fire and uh, you're going to be rewarded. And then you yeah. can go on with the next thing. Well, that, builds, have, have that, builds trust. that builds trust. That builds trust. That's a sense of maturity. That's a sense of, and your players know if we come out here and give our all, 
than we get off early. Heck, I mean, if any of a workplace operated like that, people would come yeah, in. And it's not, it's not always that way. You, you always hear yeah. about different players. And we've had things where, you know, someone's playing really hard and maybe one of the older players who's at the end of the bench is like, hey, what are you doing? You're making me look bad. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we've had to, we've had to try to stomp that out as much as we possibly can. And it always comes better that it's coming from the players to say, Hey, don't listen to that. You go after it. You, you keep going. And, and, uh, and that's, that's a big part of what has happened here. Now um, our captains, you know, specifically one of our captains, um, uh, Kendall Bates, who is a uh, just a remarkable young woman. She's already graduated now. She's still has mm-hmm. two years of eligibility left, but she's already graduated. Um, she was one of the ones, and she's she's gone through some injuries. She's had to had to really fight to come back from two ACL surgeries, and uh, she's someone that the team looks up to because of all the sacrifices that she's made. So she she pretty much walks on water with with the players, and she can ask pretty much anything of the players, and they're going to respond by saying, "I can't tell her no." You know, mm. and that's you know, and so those are the types of examples of players that we want. The other players to think about. We talk all the time about as people are rising to their senior year, we're like, okay, we've got a, we've got a really talented group of freshmen coming in. We want you to think about when you were a freshman, who were the seniors that you really looked up to? Who were the seniors that you wanted to avoid? You didn't want to be around them. Who were the ones that really, you know, you really, really admired? Be that kid. We want you to be that kid for these these girls coming in right now. We want them to think about you as you're, you know, you are the epitome of what I want to try to become as I go through my my progression here mm-hmm. as a as a college student. And um, and it's it's cool because uh, you know with Facebook and a lot of these other things, how much we're able to keep all of the players that have been here all tied together. You know that. It, it still is the, the girls who are having their 42nd birthday this year. They're still living vicariously through these 18 year olds that are on the, on the team right now. And, you know, it's, um, I hear cool. how, how connected is the alumni base to the current team and, and vice versa. I, I, I've obviously you see a lot of times the alumni are passionate about the current team, but how aware of the current team is the alumni base of Texas a and the legacy. They're, uh, they're plugged in. They're, they're really, they're plugged in pretty well. We try to keep them as plugged in as we possibly can. Um, you know, we'll have, we'll have alumni come back and talk to the players, whether it's through Zoom or, you know, a good example, Shea Groom, who, uh, you know, was, you know, the, one of the big reasons why the Houston Dash won the uh, NWSL Challenge Cup this past year. You know, and we brought, we brought her in to talk to the team. We brought up girls who are doctors and lawyers and, you know, professional players, people who were coaches, people who've gone all kinds of different professions. And they'll talk about, you know, their experience as a member of the team and how they still are watching what the girls are doing right now. And we have a, we have a, a board up in our, in our locker room, which is a thing of who wore your number. And, uh, you know, Phil has done a great job over the years of, you know, so we'll have this. And so all the, everyone who was number seven, they're all listed, you know, everybody who was number six, they're all listed. And, uh, you know, we'll get, we'll get the players that were war number six in 1995 to get a hold of number six this year. And, or actually what we'll do is we'll have the girls contact the old sixes or the old twenties or the old 18s. And we, and 
uh, Phil will give them a, a list of questions to ask these older players to kind of for their some of their wisdom. And the whole idea of, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of giants is mm. exactly what we're doing now. And and it's it's kind of cool that what when um, when we go on the road, how these players will come back and they'll automatically gravitate to the girl who is wearing their jersey mm. and and uh, and how they look after each other. I have a I have a, a lot of pictures. I have a really good picture of uh, some of our girls who wore number seven over the years. We were playing in an NCAA tournament in uh, Southern California, and here are all these girls who had worn this one particular number. And they're all congregating. They've got their families and their kids with them, and they're all, you know, in pictures together. And so, you know, I, I kind of checked that off as like, okay, family, check. We've yeah. We've are you that intentional that. about how you give numbers to to a particular player? Uh, sometimes. I mean, we've got a couple of numbers that are, you know, I've had a lot of All Americans wear that number, and we're mm-hmm. you know, we're usually pretty careful about, you know, we're going to put we're going to put one of those types of players in that jersey, mm-hmm. but. But honestly, um, that's a Lori thing. And again, yeah. I, I talk about how she looks after the girls and everything else. And she's, uh, again, a lot smarter than I am. And she's conscious of those things and conscious of, of how the players are thinking and, and you know, it has an ongoing uh, you know, relationship and conversations with them to, to help them to understand why things are done. And uh, I think it, it, it pays off. Well, I wanted to ask you too, or I made a note earlier when you talked about Lori and Phil and, and your co- and Kurt and your coaching staff, um, that is one of the things that struck me. I've worked with a lot of teams and your coaching staff, not only are there, they've been, they've been with you for a long time, but um, they, I, when I sat in your office at the end of our day and did the um, kind of recap of the day with you, I felt like I was talking to four head coaches uh, just of how invested they all were, how interested, how the questions they asked, the, the, just the, the way I, again, if I had never met, if I didn't know who was who, I would not have been able to walk away and say, this is the head coach. Like I wouldn't have. And so how, Hopefully that doesn't speak speak poorly of me. I, I, it doesn't. I, I, no, <laughs> no, it speaks highly of you. That's why I'm asking because my question is, uh, how have you created that type? Maybe you're not even, you know, it doesn't have to be a slick answer because I think it's also just kind of the way you are. But I also think there has to be some intentionality there. You've created an environment where these coaches, I mean, they've stayed with you for that long for a reason. And there's other coaches around the well, country that I, have I these longtime assistant coaches, but that's, you know, you've created, you've created this family, even on the coaching staff. Well, it's a little bit similar on the team, but, but with the, with my staff is, you know, I bring in people who can do things that I can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of things that I'm really, really, really good at. I'm better than anyone else. at. But there's a lot of things that, you know, I, I need to, I need help on that. And so, um, you know, we talk a lot about with our team, with our team that, you know, if you have like the, this Venn diagram of, we want our coaching staff to be able to touch different different parts of the uh, of the pie, and you know I think that if I give ownership, if I can give ownership and make my staff feel like they are absolute owners of this company of this business, then um, then they're going to make they're going to make good decisions for it. They're going to make decisions that are going to make the company better and more profitable and more successful. And uh, you know I started we started there with our with our camps um, that. You know, it's not just that they're not just getting a paycheck from me at the end of, at the end of the year. They are part owners in what goes on. So the better the camp does, the better they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same thing with the way the team is. The better the team does, the better they do. 
And uh, I found a long time ago that if we're only using one brain, mine, then we're limited because I've got, I've got three other really good brains in, in, my, uh, in my staff room that we can take advantage of. And one of the nice things that we have wherewithal to do here at Texas A&M is, is that we can bring in, we can bring in quote the pros. And it's funny because when we brought you in, you're saying a lot of the same things that we say all the time, mm -hmm. but Hey, we brought this, this is the pro. He came in from Maryland. He you know, flew down. He, yeah, uh, right. he, must really, he must know his stuff. <laughs> We're kind of like, like the same stuff we've been saying, but yeah. you know, but, but, the, the, but it's presented by a professional. We, we, are, we take a lot of, you know, I, we put a lot of uh, resources into the program. You know, we, we, we've had a sports psychologist working with our team for, 20 years. I don't think a lot of, a lot of people have done that. We've had performance people working with us. We have, you know, the strength and conditioning coaches that, that we hire, we hire specifically for their, what they do as soccer people um, and, and, the, and to bring in and to make our players better. So we talk all the time about, you know, we want you, if you're the strength and conditioning coach for us, you know, it's your program. Go, you know, don't, you don't have to, I'm trusting you to do this. And if, if things don't work out, then you'll hear from me. You'll, you'll mm -hmm. know that we've got to make some adjustments and we'll have an ongoing dialogue amongst the coaches of what goes on in my, my staff meetings. I run a staff meeting every Monday, more, every Monday, and I try to keep it at under an hour. Sometimes it's under 50, 35 minutes is usually as quick as they get, but we've got our academic advisor in there. We've got our athletic trainer in there. We've got, um, obviously, all the coaches, we've got our sports psychologist in there. We've got our nutritionist is in there. We've got all the people who are going to touch the players are all there. And everyone is kind of giving their piece. And we're all kind of, you know, it's an, it's an open dialogue of how can we, you know, how can, how can you help you? And by getting people in the same room and letting people speak freely and be themselves, um, you know, we use catapult as, as our sports science, you know, way of keeping track of things. So we have one person who's in, in charge of, of monitoring the catapult numbers that are coming up. Catapult is the GPS unit that mm -hmm. players wear on the, the trackers, uh, you know, yeah. on the back of their, their jerseys. Um, and he works specifically with all of us. You know, how are we going to, how are we going to adjust our training sessions this week based on the data that's coming back from here? What's, what's going on with our hydration numbers with the players? So all of these things, you know, I, want each, I want all of those people to know that you're just as important as everyone else in this room because if our nutrition is down, if our hydration is poor, kids are going to cramp up, we're going to lose players, we're going to lose games, and that's a problem. Mm. If, we're, if we have people who are getting too high in their, in their numbers from our, from our catapult numbers, Perhaps we're putting people closer to an injury and we, we can't have that. So we've got to know when we have to taper things down a little bit, when we can pick things up a little bit. Um, how is our travel going to be affecting the way the players, you know, work this week? What's going on and what's going on in everybody's classes? Are we coming up to a heavy week of exams? And it's just a matter of kind of keeping your finger on the pulse, but letting the pulse happen without me having to kind of do the drum beat all the time. Mm -hmm. like my, my role is, is, uh, has become as much about facilitator and promoter and empower empowerer. Is that a, a word? So, yeah, uh, it is now. To, to bring to bring great people together and make them better uh, because of 
the environment they're in. We can all learn from each other. We can all get better. And I think that my staff challenges me all the time to be, to do what I do better. And it's a, it's, it's a, it's a really gratifying um, experience to be a part of. And it's, like I said, we wake up every day and we come to recess. It's, there's a lot of worse things that we could be doing right now. Well, and I think the biggest, the, the theme that I am taking from, from everything you've shared over, over the last 40 minutes or so about Texanum culture is creating an environment that allows people to be at their best, to take risks, to, to make decisions, whether it's your players or your coaching staff. I remember after when we were planning to do our, you know, our part two, our second session that of course never happened because of COVID, but you were planning a meeting with this entire staff. And I remember I said to you, I was like, well, we already met with your staff. And you were like, no, 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 we have all these other people. And there's only one other team that I've ever met with a staff of that nature. And it was a really successful gymnastics program, one of the most successful in the country. And I remember taking a step back and saying, that's not a coincidence that your team and this program are these two programs that have, that I've experienced that have this extensive staff. And the unique thing about the gymnastics program is, you know, again, I like to try to make clear to listeners that, you know, they might be listening thinking, well, of course, G has this staff. He's at Texas A&M. And it's, it's just not the case because uh, this gymnastics program is not, uh, does not have the resources that A&M has. And they still got the staff because they've prioritized it and they found people that care about their program. Some of them are volunteers. Some of them are contract. Like they have a sports psychologist who's a contracted individual that they fundraise to find the money for. And it's, it's prioritizing it and saying, this is important to us. We're going to create this team of people. And then going back to what you've said, giving people the, the keys to the car and saying, do what you do best. I know. I remember feeling that whenever I'm setting up for the training, Kurt was helping me set up and uh, I can sometimes feel from coaches. They, they, they keep talking about their team while I'm setting up. Like they keep sharing and sharing and sharing. And I finally realized, I think there's a certain sense of angst of like, all right, we paid this guy. We flew him in like, this better be good. And like, you can feel that. And Kurt was literally just like doing, like, he was just like, what do you want me? Like, where do you want the posters? Where do you want this? Just like there to serve me. And I was like, you got any questions? You got any thoughts for tomorrow? And he was like, no, no, just, uh, do what you said you would do and, and you're good. <laughs> and it was, it was such a sense of just that trust. Like we, we brought you in here to do what you do. So do it. And that I think can't be uh, ignored. There's, there's a, that, that carries a lot of weight to just trust people to do their job. Well, and that's, that, that's, that's for, for me, that's my key word is trust. If, if I trust you, I, I'm bringing you in, I'm trusting you to be, I'm, I'm bringing you into the family. I'm bringing you right into work with, with my kids. Um, so I'm trusting you to do the very best you can. Now, if you betray that trust, you're out. Mm-hmm. That's the way that same thing with the players, players know that I trust them to make the right decisions. If they, if they betray that, then, you know, they, they're, they're held accountable for, uh, for what it is, you know, for them, it's a learning experience for, for people who come in from the outside. If they, if they betray that trust, well, we don't need to be a part of, of what we're doing. And, and, and again, kind of keeping our eye, our, our arms around people is, is important. And so big part of, of what I do to make sure that everyone else is, I try to empower them by giving them the resources that they need. If I need to get out and raise money, that's what I do. Um, you know, I'm, I, I've become as much promoter as I've become coach, it seems like. I mean, a lot of what I do is, is getting out and, you know, I'm beating the drum in the community. I'm 
you know, I, I, I go around our athletic department and I'm kind of, I'm, I'm a squeaky wheel, you know, that, that is always looking to get oiled, reminding people, hey, no, soccer program's still here and got a game tomorrow. You know, have, have you done all the things that we, you're supposed to do as, as you're part of this? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, just here to make sure you're going to do it and uh, and then move on to the next things. And so it's, um, it's really, because it, when I got here, when I started the program back in 93, I was doing everything. I mean, everything that had to be done, I was, I was doing it all myself. And again, I was very limited by it. I, and then I had a, you know, I brought an assistant coach in who was terrific. She ended up moving on and starting her own program and it's been incredibly successful. And, um, and then, you know, Phil and Lorda came in. I was like, okay, I'm gonna do this. we can do this a little bit differently. And I can, I can trust other people to, to take over more things. I think that was just a part of me maturing a little bit and figuring out, okay, what's my role in helping? And the more, you know, you find that I think the, the guys from uh, Ben and Jerry said once, I remember a long time ago saying, you know, we find that the more ice cream we give away, the more ice cream we sell. And, uh, and I think it's kind of the same way with, with what, what I do. The more, the more that I can do for other people, it's funny, it, it comes back, it comes back mm-hmm. tenfold. So, you know, it's just a matter of, uh, you know, making sure that you're, you know, focused on what you want to do and, and you get it done. And, you know, yeah. and I, again, I, I talk all the time. I, I, I'm the luckiest guy, you know, I've, I've had a very, very lucky life. Um, and I, I find that the harder you work, the luckier you get. So it, it just kind of keeps feeding on itself. And I, I find myself getting lucky all the time in, in a lot of things I do. And again, it's just a part of being able to attract good people and have good people right. around you. And again, I, I, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I'm, I'm smart enough to know that I'm not the smartest guy in the world and that mm-hmm. I can bring really, really intelligent, enthusiastic people in around me. And it's funny how that kind of makes things successful. And, and, and when people betray that trust, then they're out and right. find other people. Do you have, because you've said that a couple of times when they betray that trust, whether it's players or coaches, it, do you have like a hard, fast, like, like a one, two strike rule? Is it a gut thing for you? Like, you know, it doesn't that happen like? very often. It, yeah. it just doesn't happen very often. And it's, you know, and no, it's, I don't have like a, I don't keep a pitch count on, right. on what's going on. It's just a matter of, Hey, things aren't working out. And, you know, but I, I can count on, on one hand, the, the times it's ever happened on the player side of things, you know, I, I take a lot of pride in that. You know, every kid that's come in here has graduated uh, from Texas A&M, or if they haven't graduated from Texas A&M, the, the very few that have transferred to other places, they've graduated from those places. So mm-hmm. um, that's something everyone who has come in has, has finished their career playing for us over the 28 years, they've all graduated. And so that's, uh, that's again, that's because their families, their mom and dad have put their trust in me, make sure that that, that girl is going to walk across that graduation stage. And you know, if you if you come out with a degree from here in this state, um, it opens doors. You know, the, the ring opens doors. Championship rings also open doors. And the experience of one of our girls who played in the Olympics um, a couple of years ago when she she graduated with uh, the five year program, uh, our uh, accounting program like an MBA. And when she was being interviewed by the, by the big accounting firms, um, there were no accounting questions. It was all, 
what was the Olympics like? What was it like playing <laughs> soccer at, this, at A&M? It was, it, yeah. it was all of those things that, that they were, you know, incredibly impressed with. And again, her experiences in that is what opened the door to, you know, what she's doing now in her, in her career. And that goes, that's, that goes hundredfold for all the different players. So you, but you don't, so I think it's, like it's indicative of, of your recruiting and your culture that you don't have a lot of players that, that, that break the trust or that leave or transfer. How do you, I meant to ask this earlier, uh, when you were talking about recruiting, how is it that you look for those characteristics in a player? Obviously you can talk to their club coaches, you can talk to their parents, but do you have a process for trying to get to know a player before you make an offer? Well, again, uh, you know, when we, when we're recruiting, it's, it's, it's myself, it's Phil and it's Lori. And again, we have three different, we're, we're three different types of evaluators um, in, in what we're looking for. And uh, you know, and we're, so when we're out evaluating things, you know, these are, those are boxes that we're kind of checking in our head. A, is, is that an athlete who can succeed in this and help us win and make us better? Um, is it, do they have the tactical understanding to make us better? And then we're looking at, you know, what, how are they on the field? How are they off the field? How are they, when they get subbed, what do they do? Um, after the game, who's, are, are people gravitating to them? Are they, are they loners? You know, you know, what are their parents like? You know, are, are we going to bring in some real, real, uh, you know, crazy people into our environment? And, you know, and we've, we've said no to some players because they had crazy moms mm-hmm. um, or crazy dads. And, um, you know, all of those things we, we try to take into account. It's, it's unfortunately one of the problems with, with COVID happening right now where we've been in this forever dead period uh, by the NCAA. And it hasn't allowed us to go out and watch games. And all we're able to do is watch games on through video and can't see these things that we want to see. You can't see the big picture, you know, and frankly, sometimes all you see is the big picture and, and the, the players are just little dots running yeah. around. So, so it's really, it, it's, it's, un, it's unfortunate that it's so unfair to those kids who are coming out of, out of high school because we haven't been able to give them an evaluation don't know and so i can't make a decision to bring somebody in that i haven't really had a chance to to be around and to see and for her to come in and be around our players for our players to kind of evaluate and for her to evaluate our players you know it needs to be a symbiotic relationship it needs to be that we're not going to force someone to come here but at the same time we're not going to be forced to bring somebody here um my last question unless you have something else you want to say about oh. AM culture uh this has been great my last question for the podcast is it's 50 cups of coffee the concept is the power of connection talking chatting getting to know people and the impact that that can have uh sometimes it's a it's a tremendous story that led you down a different path sometimes it's just a connection that led to uh something deeper. Um, I, you and I have already talked about, uh, what, what I'd like you to share. Uh, so, um, my question is, do you have a 50 cups of coffee story? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've told the story a few times and I think a lot of people up until uh, the last few years didn't, didn't realize, um, that, you know, I was adopted when I was a kid and that was something that my parents, um, so I guess I should come up with phraseology. So I've got my mom and my mother. Okay, so my birth mother is my gave birth. My mom is who raised me. My mm-hmm. dad is who raised me. And so um, my mom and dad were always very upfront with, hey, you know, you were 
you were adopted, you were adopted when you were an infant and we're, we're so lucky to have you. And, you know, and they always, you know, it was very loving family. The Guerreros were very, very loving family. And, um, you know, but the whole, my whole life, uh, I was always, you know, you always wonder, so why, why was, I was, I would ask, so how much did I cost? You know, did, <laughs> is it a store? Is it like the Sears catalog? You know, what, what is it? And they're like, no, it's not that way. You know, you're priceless. And, you know, all the mom and dad answers that you can right. imagine. And so, but all the time wondering where, where, what's the story? Why, why was I given up? Who gave me up and why did they give me up? And why, why didn't they want to be my mom? And so, uh, my whole life, it's always in the back of your head. And I think that a lot of, a lot of adopted kids, it's always in the back of your head of, you know, you're, you're, I mean, I was incredibly happy in my life. You know, being raised in an Italian family was great. Um, But it wasn't until, gosh, I mean, I was probably 47 at the time. And I always wanted to know who my birth mother was, but I didn't really want to, I didn't want to go out and really look for her while my mom was still alive. And I just felt that that would be a betrayal of, you know, me sending a message that I didn't want her to be my mom. I wanted someone else. Mm-hmm. So my, my mom did pass away in, uh, in 01. And uh, a few years later, my, my wife, again, who's a lot, a lot smarter than I am, is someone who was the key, key to this was we were, we were talking we had a phone call once and went on a conversation about, you know, where did I come from? Who is my birth mother? And uh, so Terry, my wife, Terry, uh, said, well, you want me to do some digging and, and try to find out? And I was like, yeah, that'd be great. You know, what I know, and we pulled out my birth certificate and it had a baby Hardman was, was all it said on it, boy, and didn't have the, the mother's name. And so I said, I, I remember my mom telling me something about a name and something about Indianapolis. And, and so my wife like went in, into the wormhole of the internet and started digging and, and researching and finding, just going in. And she ended up finding through a, um, an obituary of what was actually my grandfather, that there was uh, Fred Hardman had passed away and he had three kids, one of which was a, a Beth Hardman. And that was a name that kind of had, had been had been out there, but we didn't know anything about it. So she starts digging around, tries to find different things, finds, finally finds a phone number and uh, calls, calls this number. Now she's been doing this behind the scenes for, for a while. And I'm just going on with my life. I'm at practice. And so she finds a phone number. She calls this number. She goes, hi, um, you know, are, is this, is this Beth Hartman? Uh, well, no, that's my, uh, that's my, my sister-in-law. Can I have that number? Okay. So she calls and so she gets a hold calls up this woman in a small town, Mitchell, Indiana, and says, hi, um, I'm sorry, this is a really awkward question for me, and I don't want to make it uncomfortable for you. My name is Terry Guerreri. Uh, my son, G, was, um, was adopted. Did you happen to give up a boy for adoption on May 15, 1963? And um, there's like this, this quiet, and it's like, uh, yes, that's me. I, I, that was me. And so... Terry's like, wah! <laughs> well, I've got a lot of questions for you. And so Beth was like, listen, I'm kind of hyperventilating right now. Can I call you right back? And so I'll call you back in, in 15 minutes. And so I think in that 15 minutes, 
Jerry called me. I'm at practice. I, I never answer my, I have a phone with me. I never answer it during practice. Right. Um, but on that day I did. And she's like, I found her. And I'm like, what did you find? I found her mother. I found her. I was like, yeah. oh my God. And so I like back away from the team. You know, we're talking to the team, I'm back away from, from the team. And uh, I said, okay, let me, let me practice right now. Let, when I get home, we'll handle the shoes. I know she's going to call me right back. But I think, I think Terry called everyone she knew in that 15 minutes, her sister, her mother, all, all these people. Yeah. And, um, and anyway, long, long story short is come to find out that, uh, you know, I got the phone number. I, I, I called her at, actually on Mother's Day um, later on and was talking to her and kind of tried to find out the story. And, and the story was that she had, uh, she was, uh, she was working for Eastern Airlines. Um, she you know, got pregnant. She was engaged, but then um, you know the uh, her fiance when found out she was pregnant broke everything off, and then she was kind of left out. And so she moved to Chicago. And again, it's the 1960s, early 60s, mm-hmm. and nobody knew she was pregnant except for her father. And so she went. She she. She lived in Chicago for a while. She gave birth and then kind of came back. No one, no one knew because she was living in Chicago already wow. working for Eastern, and um, came back and nobody, nobody knew about it. And so um, she goes, you know, no one. We haven't told anybody this. And you know, I go, well, I'd love to come and you have three grandkids. I'd, I'd love to bring them and meet you. I'd love to come and see, see you know the town you're in. So, so a little bit later on comes around and um, get the opportunity to, to fly up to uh, Louisville and then drive up to Southern Indiana. Mitchell is a, like a two-stop stoplight town. And, uh, and we meet all these people. She's, she gets all, her brothers and cousins, all this stuff. And it's the first time I'd ever been to a family event that I looked like anybody. Yeah. I, you know, number one, that's, I was around, always around the town. I'm 6'2". My dad was 5'5". Five, five. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, Full head of hair, you know, he looks like everyone in every Godfather movie you've ever seen. And so yeah. that was all my relatives, great people. So I walk in, number one, and everyone's everyone looks like me, you know, and I'm like, okay, this is wild. And so my uncle comes up and we're talking and we're kind of walking through this little town, just like right by the hardware store, you know, across from the church and all this. And he's like, well, you know, nobody knew about you. He goes, and I could never figure it out. He goes, my father took your secret to his grave. He never told my mother. He goes, I could never figure out why would he, why would he not tell his wife? I mean, they, they, they shared everything. And um, he goes, and then it hit me. I'm like, okay. He goes, if she had known about you, then she would have raised you and you would have been raised right here. And I was like, kind of looking around, you know, and it kind of, took my breath back and it's kind of that was my um it's a wonderful life moment mm-hmm. where you you see what your life would have been like with one little change mm-hmm. one little thing that did not happen i would have been raised in mitchell indiana i doubt that i would have ever played soccer um i surely would never have met my wife who i went to high school with um mm-hmm. here in texas which means i wouldn't have my kids um it means that i wouldn't have come to texas a&m all of the players that I recruited wouldn't be here. They wouldn't have their husbands. They wouldn't have their kids. And you start thinking about all these 
just all the ripple effects that happen from one decision and one decision to keep a, you know, a really big secret mm-hmm. away from your mother and all the things that could have happened from that. And so, you know, when I think about, you know, how fortunate I've been and, and the success that I've had and the people that I'm around and, and all the mentors I've, I've had and all the people that I get to be with and the, the players I get to be with. Yeah, again, that's, that's why you know, I talk about, I'm a super lucky guy. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if you need someone to win a raffle, I'm your guy. I win <laughs> raffles all the time. Um, it's just, you know, I, I feel like I've been, I've kind of been maybe touched by uh, touched by an angel and it has, has really helped me to, uh, to realize that there's, you know, you're, you're put places. I think you, I think I've been put on this, this path for a reason to help people and to do things the, the way that I do. And so uh, it, it's all been, it's all been you know, a really, really cool experience. Then a few years ago, two years ago, I think, um, yeah, 2017, um, anyway, a couple of years ago, we uh, find out that Beth is sick and that she's, she's in um, intensive care and, and I'm the only one that's listed as a, as a blood relative of hers that, you know, as a, as a child. So I had to go up to Indiana to be able to, to make decisions. Her, her longtime, you know, common law husband, um, they didn't have the right documentation, so he couldn't make decisions. Mm-hmm. So I had to go up. Well, this was right as we had just made the NCAA tournament. It's announced that we're going to play the University of Texas, our Texas A&M's hated most despised right. rival of all time and and we're gonna that's who we're gonna play in the first round and so i get a hold of uh my boss ross burke i said listen i gotta it's a family thing i go i i, I gotta i gotta go I, I i'm gonna probably miss this game i go up my staff's awesome i've got them ready they're prepared but i'm gonna take off on thursday and miss the game on friday and uh so i went up I ended up going up to Indiana. She ended up uh, passing away that, that uh, weekend, but, mm-hmm. and I ended up watching, you know, kind of watching the game. It's the first time I'd never been at a game number one. <laughs> so watching the game and watching what the team did and how they played and, you know, that they, you know, that they really rallied and, and did some, you know, I mean, they crushed Texas. They beat them four to one. And, uh, you know, Sorry. No, no, it's, don't be sorry. <laughs> staff, staff had a, uh, had a missing man formation. You know where my chair was. Sorry. <laughs> Okay, I got together. Just so it was really emotional. Number one, I lost my mother again, <laughs> but also that you know the team played for me. <sighs> you know, they played for themselves. They played for the school, but um. But for me. That was the clincher, mm-hmm. you know. I 
I'm in the right place. I'm surrounded by the right people. We do things for each other. We do things because we love each other. And, uh, you know, it, it, and it's really cool to know that's what you, that's what you built. That's what, that's what you're around. And, uh, you know, people ask me, so, you know, what are you going to do when you retire? What, what's like <laughs> retire? What, what, what is that? I mean, mm-hmm. this is what I do. This is where I am. I'm, I'm still in my fifties. I've got, I've got a lot of time left. And, uh, and why, why would I leave this? Why would I go? Number one, why would I go someplace if I took another job? Why would I want to come against this monster that I've created? But also, um, we can we can still build on on the things that we have. We can still bring better, even better players here. We can have better teams. We can we have this we have this floor that we're is, is sturdy and standard that we now can just build upon and, and make better and better and better. And you know, for me, that's uh, it's it's incredibly gratifying. Mm-hmm. And uh, sorry, I didn't mean to get emotional, but. Don't apologize for, for emotion, but it is. coach. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, sorry. Yeah. Oh, I got it together again. Go ahead. No, you're good. No, no, honestly, um, that's a beautiful story. Uh, it's beautiful how you were just your wife finding, finding your birth mother and, and even going up there and, and having that, like you said, uh, 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 what's the movie you mentioned the movie uh experience it's a wonderful life. it's a wonderful life experience yeah and then to be able to go up and, and be with your mother during that time and to watch your team uh uh play and and your coaching staff coach and 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 like you said the the formation for you uh is indicative of everything you've talked about uh, it's it's when i when i said to you i sat in the room and if I didn't know, I wouldn't have known who the head coach was. And you made the joke of saying, I hope that doesn't reflect poorly on me, but it's like, it's no, it's saying, uh, you, you've built this, like you said, this monster, this, this, and, and the, the, the sign of a, of a great program, sports, business, family, you name it is when the leader of the program leaves, how, how does everybody else act and respond and and so there you have it the the one game you're not there and and not only do they respond by still performing at the highest level by still doing what they're supposed to do but they they make a point to say you're still here with us and and that's that's powerful um and i appreciate your emotion because it it means more to you it means more to you than just soccer you 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 say a lot of people say family and I say this all the time. It's like, listen, we want to talk about core values and family and this, that, and the other. And it's like, but do you really feel it? And I think the fact that you can, you tell the story and you feel it uh, is indicative of that. You know, you're, you're, you're with, you're with one family and you're, and you're, and you have another family uh, doing, doing what they do down in Texas at the same time. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I said, a lucky guy. Yeah. Hey, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll sign this off, but stay on. I'll just say goodbye to you off mic, but, uh, uh, thank you. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me. I mean, I, I really, I've really enjoyed our relationship and, and really value our friendship and, and, and value you as a professional and what you've been able to, to help my kids with. 
Thank you for that. I, I as well. And that's why I, I was going to say it's been an odd season for me uh, to not be as connected with our teams. I remember when I saw your stadium and I was thinking I'm, I'm going to get down here for a game because I like to do that with the teams I work with while I'm traveling, make sure I can get to places and see them. And and so this has been fun to to, to chat with you in this way because selfishly for this podcast, these are the questions I want to ask you anyways uh, <laughs> about your journey and everything. So yeah. Uh, Thanks. Thanks for doing this, G. You bet. Again, G is one of my favorite people on the planet and one of the best coaches in sports. If you are enjoying the show, please take one minute right now to subscribe wherever you are listening. Give us a rating and leave a review. This helps us tremendously. I read each review we get. I love it. Rating and a short review. It's a big, big help to us. If I can help you or your team in any way, head on over to bobbyaudley.com and shoot me a message. We help teams build winning cultures. As G shared on this episode, we are part of the Aggie family and we would love to be a part of yours. I've decided to dedicate season two to the late coach Ashley Riggs, a UNC Tar Heel national champion, captain under last week's guest Anson Dorrance and friend of the Audley family. If you got the end of last week's episode, I go into detail about Ashley Riggs and why I'm choosing to dedicate season two to her. Ashley and my dad coached the Cicerone or Syracuse high school girls soccer team to a New York State Final Four back in the early 2000s. Just three months ago, Ashley passed away after a long battle with cancer. In honor of Ashley, an annual award is being set up through the UNC Women's Soccer Program. This award will be presented annually to a player that demonstrates hard work, perseverance, and fight. Monies will also go to sponsoring high school teams and players who otherwise may not be able to attend UNC Soccer Camp, a camp that we talk in detail about in my episode with Anson Dorrance. Donations can be sent to Educational Foundation, Women's Soccer, P.O. Box 2446, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, 27515 and that address is also in the show notes checks can be made out to educational foundation women's soccer and be sure to put ashley's name in the memo line and again all of this information is in the show notes 50 cups of coffee with bobby audley is a production of bobbyaudley.com that's my super creative business name head on over there to watch the 50 cups of coffee tedx talk listen to past episodes of the show, and learn how I could help your team or organization. Our theme music and art is by Matisse Soy. Until next time, stay connected.